What's going on, everyone? We got something new today that I'm excited about. We've done a few series on war stories so far. We had a little one about D-Day, one about Guadalcanal, the invasion of Iraq, the invasion or the early days in Afghanistan. But today we're going to take it a little bit different direction. And we're going to have a series that I'll call a discussion about Band of Brothers. So this was an idea that my buddy Sayer Payne brought up. And as we were talking about it, realized how important that series is and, and kind of what it documents and the, strangely the role that it's played in our lives individually. Um, so we thought it'd be fun to get into. So Sayer, you've been on here before, but thanks for jumping on and, and doing this series, man. Yeah, no, I think it's fun and it's a great, um, I just like the storytelling you're doing and it's an, it, they're interesting topics. You and I are sort of passionate about it and it's, it, held, it holds a lot of meaning for both of us and, and for a lot of people. It's, it's also just a great series to talk about, regardless of being in the military yourself. I mean, it's just, it's well-crafted, it's well done. The book is excellent, just all, all of it, you know, the whole series and story. So for anyone who doesn't know or hasn't seen it, Band of Brothers is a 10-part series on HBO or originally on HBO. I think you can probably watch it a couple other places now. But it follows Easy Company, Company E, of the 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment of the 101st Airborne Division through World War II. So they fought in the European theater. It really tracks from their training in, say, 1942, 1942 to 1943 to the end of the war in 1945. So it's this two- to three-year window focused almost exclusively. There's cameos from other units, but really it's exclusively around this one unit and the people within their organization. Now, Band of Brothers came out 20 years ago, came out in 2001. We were just looking it up September 9th, 2001. So how about that? Yeah. Um, and it's crazy because, so I, I would say that, and I'll speak for you, Sarah, I would say, I think I came up with Band of Brothers, mm. right? This was something that we were watching when we were very malleable um, in terms yeah. of what our future is going to hold. And it's interesting yeah. that still today, 20 years later, there's kids coming up watching the same thing. And one of the reasons we talked about getting into this was recognizing maybe the impact, which is weird to say, about a TV series that's had on our lives. So for myself, I knew in 2001, September 2001, I was a sophomore in high school. I pretty well knew that I, I had an idea that I wanted to go into the military. 9-11 changed that. That was kind of a catalyst for me, really put me on the path to join the military. But Band of Brothers was it. I mean, this was the brand new thing. It was, there's was nothing like it that was out at this point. Um, and by the time I left West Point in 2009 to enter the active duty military, you got to choose somewhat where you went for a first duty location. And I chose the 101st. And there were a lot of reasons for that, but right up there at the top of the list was the legacy. I thought, and I'm getting goosebumps talking about it, but I thought how cool to wear that patch on my left sleeve and maybe even my right sleeve, if I'm lucky, right? Mm -hmm. Combat patch. Right. To be able to be a small part of that unit. The guys in Band of Brothers, the ones that jumped into Normandy, Market Garden, that's to be a part of that. When it's all said and done, to be able to say that unit, I was a part of that unit. Um, that's the main reason I chose Fort Campbell and everything's changed since then, right? Combat deployments. And, and I'm a different person because of that in a good way. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, it's strange looking back to say this TV series 
had such a large impact in a way. So that's why I think that this is such a, a fun and interesting topic. But Sarah, I know you've got a lot of thoughts on it as well. Yeah, I mean, um, well, we're the same age, so sophomore in 01. We're two days apart, and, you know, <laughs> it's kind of interesting. But um, totally same age, graduated high school in 04. So uh, what's interesting is, yeah, the series, I didn't watch it when it came out, 01. But I remember watching it probably when I was 17 or something, so the following year, maybe junior year or something. You know, buy it on DVD. We didn't have HBO. Um, and so I would have watched it post 9-11, a year after 9-11 at least. But, you know, my story for that really is I always thought, saw myself going into military. You know, I thought as a kid of the 90s, I thought I'd be going in Africa, doing some crazy stuff there or something. And But I always sort of pictured that being my path. And then 9-11 happened right before we turned 16. And I just sort of strengthened my resolve, motivated me. And then uh, the Band of Brothers, I read the book first. And um, probably because I heard people talking about the show and I didn't have HBO and the book's cheaper. So uh, I got the book probably for Christmas, actually. I probably didn't pay for it. That's probably what happened. Um, Christmas of 01, I bet, is when I got that book. And I read it and loved every bit of it, just every bit of it. And the fact that it's real, all of it. And then uh, the series itself was spot on. I'm, all, I'm always one of those people that said the book's always better than the movie. But the book, it, oh, the movie is 10 hours, it was 400 and some pages. So that's why the book is always, you can't cram two hours, a book into two hours. They, they didn't miss anything. You know, we'll talk about that because there's some cool parts in the book too that are in the movie, that are not real. They're in the movie still, by the way. They are there, but you have to kind of know what you're looking for. Because the attention to detail in this series is awesome. And the only thing I'd like to say, besides the motivation and the inspiration, because I did want to go 101st, I called the branch uh, woman, the lady there, that was there for like 40 years. And I nagged her as a lieutenant, trying to get my post-it note on my, you know, Sayer uh, Paynport Campbell. Um, and I, I, I personally learned lessons, and I've watched the series many times, you know, that that are tried and true, I think, lessons in combat and leadership and like what works and what doesn't work. Um, and faking and authenticity there's so much to glean and people I emulate I wanted to emulate Dick Winters and Spears a little bit and um, and there's excellent things to learn from it that are real advice and it may happen you know I know a guy that lives nearby Pee Wee Martin he was in golf or uh, I should know this Fox Company Um, and same thing he was through all of this and he's 100 now so it's, it's old, but it, it's so relevant today, too. And that's what I think exciting about it at any point in the 20th anniversary of the series. You know, there's always a good time to be talking about being a brothers in my book. Yeah, and I think that's a good lead in to say that this isn't designed to be an analysis of the series. We're not going to fact check things. That's not um, the plan. That's not the goal. The idea is just to have a conversation like we've probably done, like many of us, many of you listening probably have done, watched a movie, watched a show and sat down with friends and just talked about it for a while. Or maybe you pause the show and really frustrate your wife trying to have this conversation in the middle of it. Um, that's the idea. We're just going to talk about, we've pulled out some, some handful of events that we're definitely going to hit on, add a little context, add a little bit of our thoughts. But uh, I think with that, we dive on in. What do you think, Sarah? Yeah, let's do it. Episode one, Curahy, the 10-second overview is this is an episode about training. The, it bounces back and forth, kind of starts with them getting ready 
to board the planes and it gets canceled at the last minute for D-Day. And then it ends with them actually taking off to fly across the English Channel to jump into Normandy. But um, the bulk of the episode is tied to training, getting ready for the war. And I think the, or getting ready to fight. And I think the first part we wanted to hit on here is right out the gate, right at the very beginning when they're interviewing some of the soldiers, some of the real soldiers that are actually portrayed in the Band of Brothers. And one of them mentioned something. He said it was a different time. People yeah. were rushing to sign up. to. They, they, people wanted to go. They wanted to sign up. And he mentioned that some were listed as 4F, which means unfit for military service, uh, yeah. physically, mentally, or morally. So kind of a big grouping, but folks that were listed as unable to go killed themselves. Not all, of course, but, but he mentions that there were some people in his small town that they couldn't take that. Yeah. They wanted to go so badly when they were told they couldn't, it was, it was devastating. And I thought that was a good place to start. Um, especially now, 20 years after nine 11, we just talked about what um, kind of prompted us to enter the military. Yeah. Interesting. Well, there were many things. I, what I think is interesting about all of it, there's, there's the nuance between th- them joining and really anybody joining. Time of war, not time of war. There's always, well, how much does it pay? What can I get out of it? Because some of the guys mentioned extra jump pay. So it's like, okay, I'll get paid more. Uh, other guys, you hear, uh, you know, Dick Winters at some point meant, you know, it's because they wanted to be around the best. If they were going to go fight the Nazis, they wanted to be around the best. So that was a motivator for some. Um, and I'm sure other people did it because their buddies did or something. And then they couldn't. And then that probably was what caused the suicides and whatnot of just maybe just the, the, the moral obligation of whatever. And um, I just think it's fascinating because, well, because at the end of the day, you can do any job that pays money. If it's about money, anything, you don't, you don't have to jump out of airplanes in Germany to do that, you know to make an extra $25. There are other ways. Uh, and the same thing if, if you want to serve in the military, you know, even in the infantry, it doesn't have to be jumping out, of, which is totally new at the time, jumping out of airplanes into like Nazi Germany or occupied Europe. It's, that takes a little bit of crazy to do all of those things. And um, so it wasn't, I don't, you know, for my, I, I don't think it was about the money, right? I don't think it, it was, well, they, they ended up forging the Band of Brothers, of course, um, which I think a lot of people end up doing. And um, it's interesting to hear their take in this. But the takeaway for us, though, I think the similarity is the war piece and raising the hand in the time where it is dark cloud. The future is unknown in that regard. There are bad guys trying to kill us. They may have already killed us. That's what started it being attacked on U.S. soil. And, I, and it is interesting between generations that ours do have that similarity. I mean, I'm not saying 9-11 was Pearl Harbor, but damn, it sure was a watershed moment. And we saw Americans dying on TV. And that's what they had to deal with, that sort of shock and trauma of totally unexpected. And you would think it'd be more expected during Pearl Harbor with what was going on in the world versus 9-11. But at the same time, you know, that wasn't totally out of the blue either. It's something that I think is worth bringing up because it gets lost for me, at least when I look at military history and you kind of have these set dates, right. And you just kind of move right along the dates. We forget that those guys that signed up 
in December of 1941, let's say they joined the 101st Airborne. They didn't fight for two and a half years. Right. Two and a half years of getting ready. We make these big jumps, and, and I'm, I'm guilty of it too. Now, now, there were people fighting before that, especially in the Pacific. We had folks in North Africa pretty early, in, in Italy, even earlier than D-Day, right? But yep. we're talking about the 101st Airborne Division. These guys yeah. that signed up the, you know, the day after Pearl Harbor or the day of Pearl Harbor, they didn't enter combat for two and a half years. Two and a half years. Yeah. Worth of, think about that. Yeah. A long I mean, time. And really, for those that are ignorant, I was, I'm still ignorant about Vietnam War and what they went through. And I've got buddies that were always, I'm always learning stuff from them. And, and if you think about it, that's a huge distinction, too, with they trained together for so long before they actually, before it was game, game time. And even we did. We had, the, we built a team and the teams, you know, it's always changing. People are coming and going, yes. But we still built a team for like six months or so before we deployed. Vietnam, the 101st Airborne Division, was fully deployed the whole time. It was fully deployed. And people just individually would replace a slot. Just one man gone, another man. And then maybe three weeks from later, a new guy pops up and he rotates. And you never really got to know that, that, that team build that we see in this episode and even kind of what we did in contemporary times. That didn't even exist in Vietnam, which I just think is an interesting facet to that war and all wars that have their uniqueness. So that's a good lead in actually to kind of the second bullet point we're going to hit on here. Um, the units were coming up together, right? Mm-hmm. So we think of, to your point, Sayer, I'll, I'll skip Vietnam because that was kind of unique in its own sense. But today you've got units that are constantly being um, remanned, re-equipped, and then they deploy with, with generally a set group. But, but these people have come from all different positions in the military. From Some have been in for one year, others for 20 years. When we're ramping up for war, like we were in World War I and here in World War II, you're standing up entire units. So right. what you see in this episode of Curry was this entire platoon, there's a lot of focus on the platoon, some on the company, um, being trained together. And they pull a couple people out and say, you're now an NCO, maybe age, maybe experience. Um, the lieutenants, the officers are there. But the entire platoon, it's, it's not quite, but almost like a platoon goes through basic training, AIT. And then jump school and then shows up ready to go. It's almost right, that. right, right. And that gets into the leader that they had at Curry, who uh, is not portrayed in a positive light, I think is what I'll say. Captain Sobel. Yeah. They hated him. He's an interesting character. Um, well, real life person, not just character. But um, and I've seen kind of people like that. There's the um, attention to detail is important. It really is doing the little things right. You got to be able to do little things to be trusted to do the big things. But taken to the extreme becomes an absurdity. You know, because a lot of the uh, lessons learned in the military, you know, you just look at his examples of where. um, He. There's always going to be an error and a mistake, and he's looking to bust them. And I think that's the newest. Here's what I don't know about Captain Sobel. Was he doing it on purpose to make them hate him? And they are going to now have something in common because they're all from everywhere in the world and they're not, or the country, and they're not professional soldiers. Because um, that is an issue. How do you build a team like that with people all across the country? 
and they didn't plan on being in the military until that thing happened. That's a, um, you know, he got, got he gets so I, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I got one there. Um, I grew up playing hockey and we watched a lot and read a lot about the 1980 Olympic team, the America on ice, right? That's the big, mm-hmm. big event, the coach. And I'm, I'm probably misremembering parts of this. So um, if I'm wrong in anything, please folks, let me know. But Herb Brooks was the coach. And the 1980 Olympic team was not professional athletes. It was college students from around the country, college athletes from around the country that kind of hated each other. They played on opposing teams all year and some really intense rivalries there. And a leadership method that Herb Brooks implemented was essentially to make everybody hate him because they had nothing in common at all. Like people wouldn't talk with each other. Right. Fine. I can get you, I can get at least one thing to get you on the same page. You can both hate me. And they kind of came together over this hatred, dislike, frustration with their coach. And, and that was the thing that made them come together. And then they kind of were able to see past the fact that one played for Minnesota and one for Michigan. So that's a thing that, you know, deliberately done. That's, that's a thing. It, it could work. It gets results. I mean, at the end of the day, it's undeniable. For anyone who's watched it, it's undeniable the team was built. Now, I think the question becomes, how much credit does Sobel get? Like, if he did it on purpose, he's a genius. because, And he's a true hero because he that's selfless service. Like, let's think about that. If he thought the best thing possible to build the best company ever, let's just say. They were a great company, great unit, all of that. And let's just say, he, he said, I'm going to fall on the sword. I'm going to be the asshole here. I don't know if that's exactly what happened here, but... It is a technique, fear or love. We see that with winners, obviously, as that goes. There's, there's leadership. It's the art of leadership. The science of it is they have to follow you. It's an order. Um, you know, Kat, you got to call them sir. That's the environment you're in. Uh, the inspiration piece is the art. And, and if you're not worried about inspiration and motivation and you're just worried about results, I, I think that's when you get the Sobel. I don't know how self-aware he was. I think he was focused. My take and impression just from reading and viewing it as a person in the audience is he was focused on the results and worried about what Colonel Sink would think if he got caught screw if something was wrong. Oh, no, God forbid. Easy Company had, uh, I don't know, if they did whatever, gigs for their water in their canteen, something. God forbid he got caught for that. And now... He's worried about himself looking bad in the colonel's eyes. That's not the, you know, that's, that's a whole different approach um, when it comes to ego and leadership and all of that. But it built the team and that <laughs> he gets credit for that at the end of it because he did get results, you know, now, and it's hard to not um, talk about that. Now, the idea of was it intentional or not, I want to caveat this with, I wasn't there. Right. I don't we don't have all of the information. What yeah. we're judging in this show is what's portrayed in the Band of Brothers series. So using the information that's in that series, there was a night road march in episode one. And the platoons, the company, they were sucking. It looked horrible. Right. It, th- that was the one where they said, pour out your canteen. So essentially they couldn't drink any water for 12 miles. Right. They come back, they're sweating. You can see they did a good job, in the, I think, showing how muggy it must have been just in that video if you just watched how how nasty yeah. that march must have been the summer in georgia is horrible yeah, yeah. 
they come back from that march and Sobel standing there. So that's us against them. So in my view, just taking what's in the show, that's not, he's not building a team. It's an us against them. It's a thing that he's trying yeah. to build. Why is he not out there just walking with them? That's an easy one to do. Again, just pulling out what's shown in the, in the series. To me, that is a um, lack of awareness as opposed to a deliberate getting the team to bond against me, if you will. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's madness in there somewhere, right? He, that's, I think that's what makes him so tricky and so interesting. And I really think that um, I wish I, David Schwimmer, or whatever the actor, did a really great job just playing that character. You know, um, I mean, all the actors did, but the way he did it, I mean, it just makes it so believable. And you in the audience despise this guy too. Isn't that interesting? And in a way, you are relating to the guys going through this hardship without going through it in the least bit. Um, I, again, I think they do a good job of doing that. Um, and I think, by the way, I think when you're in unit, you're always going to be, you know, oh, battalion, oh, we're just going for, you know, medals, you know, all oh, the colonels OER, you know, I think that there's a lot of that grumbling at a lot of those, you know, the levels at the lowest level, which is where it gets done. Um, and those are the lowest levels that told the story of Band of Brothers. So that is a perspective because higher up has a mission and a lot of times it is more callous. But there is a point to it, too, and it is a big, you know, you're always concerned with your little path, but, you know, it's, it's a chess game, and, and there's a piece to, there's another person to this side and that side, and you may not have no idea what they're doing, even a different company. Um, everyone's kind of doing their own thing, and it can kind of cause resentment, it causes competition as well, healthy and toxic, I think, in those type of training environments. I mean, they're training for war, too, by the way. This isn't for fun. Um, this isn't for college. And again, if it was for the money, you're not going to, that washout rate that they had was obscene. So to actually stick it through, there's no way you could say it was about the extra 50 bucks then. There was some sort of drive and a competitiveness and probably aggression. I think that has to be a component. I think that's a good lead into a bullet. We actually had a little further down the list here, Sayer, so bear with me as I adjust on the fly, but um, eventually the NCOs and Easy Company write a letter to Colonel Sink, the regimental commander, and say they're not going to serve with this commander. They're not going to serve with Captain Sobel or Lieutenant, I think he was a captain at that point, Captain Sobel in combat. Um, Correct. That goes to the colonel for review. He pulls them into his office and says, you know, you you could be shot. This is sedition on the eve of, of some of the largest military operations in history. Um, seeing that, you're talking about they are training for war. They did build a team. They did. They built the team, but, but you can't take the commander out. He might not be the most important piece. Always. Sometimes, not always. But he was so far off the reservation in the eyes of the soldiers that these NCOs were willing to give up their rank, transfer. So think about all that teamwork and cohesion that they built over the years. I don't know that, as kind of, a, as kind of an aside, there's always been, you know, you fall asleep on guard duty, you could be shot in war, right? And you, this kind of thing. It's always technically out there. The U.S. military 
really since World War One hasn't really followed through on those things. So the idea of these guys being shot for this, right. um, it certainly may have crossed their minds. I don't think that was realistic. Um, but at the very least, they're giving up rank, giving up pay, giving up responsibility, leaving the unit. I think that's underplayed. Like, imagine getting ready to deploy to Afghanistan, Sayer, and they say, boom, you're moving to another battalion. Be devastating. It it crushed me when I saw that that was the first penalty for that one guy that you don't don't know his name or whatever. And he got sent to a different regiment. And, Rangers. You know, that is that where he went? No, I said strangers. I used to oh, go to a, said a beautiful yeah, stranger. No. Regiment and 502nd. That was one of the regiments, and I think they're awesome too, but <laughs> it doesn't matter. He trained in the 506, though, through all of that. And I agree with you. I thought I found that to be like just devastating for and, him. I felt bad for him. So I think one of the things you were getting at a little bit earlier around there's more to it than $50. There's other ways to earn $50. Yeah. They wanted to be a part of this elite unit, a part of the the best of the best. And so we kept drilling that into them. You have to be the best, you have to be perfect. And I think something that happened then once they get into these training exercises that they went on for a long time, remember it was sometimes two and a half years before they'd actually see combat. This guy that's been drilling into them, you have to be perfect to be a part of my unit, as he would say. They look back Mm. and say, but you're not good enough. You're not the best of the best. I'm I'm not going to say that he was incompetent. Again, I not being there, not not being able to witness the full scope of, of these training exercises at the very least, I think it's safe to say that he was not the best of the best, but he was asking that of his men. And I think that was a clash that probably was what led to this letter. Um, I would use the word incompetent. He was incompetent. He was incompetent to be in that unit, to be a tactical leader, not knowing where he is on the map. um, And honestly, not inspiring others to be able to die. Because that's part of it. That's when they say, follow me. That's the whole point. It's not you go ahead. That's not the infantry creed. You go ahead and I'll be right behind. No, it's follow me. And if, if it's crickets behind you, you got a problem. That's a comp- And if you can't do the mission, that's a competency issue. So I, you know, I would go ahead and just say that. From a tactical level, he's incompetent. Now, from a training level, I think he's highly competent. And that's that's like the Fort Benning, literally the Fort Benning training. And that's how I think perfection could be achieved in his world because um, going up and down Curry, he had a certain time limit. I forget what it was. Let's just say 60 minutes. That's black and white. Being able to do 50 push-ups in one minute, that's black and white. 49, 51, there's a difference. Um, any of those things, how much you weigh even, it's all metric, results-oriented, and it's tangible. Doing the five jumps, having to go X amount of times out the tower, being able to accomplish runs in a certain time. All of the, the paratrooper training that they had to do from a physical standpoint to physically make these guys capable to um, rock and hump and, and do all those things and carry the weight that's required of combat itself. That's another feat, by the way. That's that's the uh, picture him like a, maybe he's just this great mechanic on a car. He's not a good car driver, though. But he can fix the hell out of a car. And, and that's what he built the sinew and the muscle, the physicality of these guys, too. Um, but going to war and actually doing it is not perfect. It's not tangible. There is no perfect answer under those circumstances. So what do you do? Uh, you have to make a decision and you got to go with it. And they got to follow you. 
that is the challenge of that on the tactic side. And that's why I think it's a total different uh, animal when we're talking the training part for the paratrooper and then the England part where they're in the woods doing the stick slings. So there's something that I had written down here. I was going to say that Sobel's rigid. There's no personality, no flexibility. And I think it's interesting because I do think there's a perception in the military that especially military leaders have to be straight edge, mm. right? Like here's the regulation. Yeah. And, and to be fair, we've probably all worked with people in the military or out that fit that right. category. There's a rule book here. We're going to follow it to the T. But I mean, what you're describing right now is that's fine. There's a place for that, but you got to be able to be flexible. You got to be able to shift. And they did a pretty good job from the start showing that he was not that. He was mm. not going to improvise on the fly. That's an interesting point. I never even thought about that. But um, in that movie, at least. But that is the art of it. Uh, per- perfect is the enemy of good. And it, it muddies things up and it, and it skews risk tolerance. Um, and that is, um, it's, it is interesting as a perception, I think, of what people have of the military of that rigid view. But I mean, we're going to see it later with winners, you know, arbitrary, arbitrary suffering is so stupid. Okay. So like, there's a point of, there is a point of running curry under a certain time limit. And having expectations. Maybe I don't know about doing the 12 miles out of any water. It's pretty bad. I don't agree with that. But maybe there is a point. Maybe there is a point to that to train them physically, right? To get them to to know how to manage water properly. And that what I'm saying is you're walking away with a lesson at the end of the day. You're like, oh, I learned more about myself. It was real hard and it, and it stunk, but I learned that um, you know, I learned that I can go three days without sleep, for example. I wouldn't have known that had I not known otherwise. And I also know after three days or whatever, you get crazy. Other people get crazy, that sort of stuff. You know, working all those kinks out, suffering, you get a result. They're good with that. But um, the arbitrariness is what will cause, I think, the hate that they ended up having of him. So I want to throw one in there that I think in this show comes across as hate and arbitrary, but I actually think serves a good purpose. And it's the day that Sobel gives them off. Says, no training. We're going to do classroom instruction. I like spaghetti, right, is what he tells Winters, who's running the mess all the time. And then as they're just piling this stuff down, right, just just (laughs) wolfing the spaghetti down, he comes in and says, it's canceled. Um, We're running curry. And the next scene is people just vomiting all over themselves. And on the one hand, I got it. That sucks. It's a shitty move. Um, Mm -hmm. If it was planned to be mean like that but i had a battalion commander that i really liked in uh, 320th actually say or so in the artillery battalion at fort campbell and he would do that on battalion and company runs we'd go on this little you know there was like a three mile loop and everybody knew what the three mile loop was and when the end came in sight right in front of the barracks that's where we stopped that's where we always stopped and every so often it worked really well the first time the next few times didn't work as well we just keep going and it might now be a four-mile run or a nine-mile run. But people were yeah. kind of ready. They had that three miles in their mind. Yeah. Like, well, I can do three oh, miles. Yeah. And then he doubles it at the end. Yeah. And I think there's some value to that. I think there's a little bit of value to 
always be ready. You're going to be asked to do things even when you're not in perfect shape, when you're not, you know, stretched well, well rested and so on. So I'm kind of mixed on that specific piece there. It's context. And the thing is, if he was right there with them, like picture the scenario where, yeah, running on the full spaghetti, but then he's running and, and dry heaving beside him laughing saying, bah, puke, yeah. puke up the meatballs, you know, you want to, and just kind of messing with them. And they're like, oh, this son of a bitch. But he's not a jerk about it. You know, there's, <laughs> that's the nuance in the art. I, I don't know. I took it as him being, he wanted to make winners look bad. And they to think, I think that they wanted, he wanted them to blame winners for it because he was jealous and petty of the love that they had for winners over him. And so he was just trying to make winners bad. I mean, that, that's my take on it. Um, but we weren't there, like you said. So Sobel's eventually relieved and sent to a training unit. So you called, I mean, you were just talking about this. He might be a really good trainer, maybe not a good combat leader. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. As long as people are in the right place. Right. Um, yeah. That's leadership, by the way, that's army. That's the team. When they talk about a team, it is everybody, I do believe, is uniquely special in something, even assholes, okay? If they're an asshole and a hard worker, they are probably really good at something at the end of the day. It's just a matter of finding what that is. And he, he trained in soldiers where they'll never see him again. You know, they see him for three months, and he gets them doing as many push-ups and running as much as possible, and they get the hell out of there uh, to go to their unit. So be it. So I think that's, that's a win for the Army, recognizing a non-tactical leader but recognizing a guy good at training. He's good at something, so let's put him to use. But then for the other guys, we need another person, obviously, to, that's more in a, they're cut from a different sort of cloth. What came to mind for me when that conversation? So first off, it's in Colonel Sink's office. He's poured a scotch or a bourbon or something in front of a fireplace, and they're sitting in these big leather chairs like, I'm doing something wrong. I feel like I could have much more challenging conversations if that's how they went, right? Um, so I'll talk to Megan, maybe we'll get a fireplace here in the office. Yeah. But, uh, anyways, when he tells, uh, Captain Sobel at the time that all of your NCOs, every NCO in the company, it sounded like wrote this letter to say, they're not going to work with you. And he sounded surprised like that doesn't, I don't think that's in line with them. They must've been influenced, right. Or peer pressure. Uh All I could think was how out of touch with your guys are if that was truly how he felt, you're on a different planet. Yeah. Is yeah. that, yeah. What do you think? There's that something he could have remedied earlier? Or? I think it's, uh, no, I, I think it's a really tough job. And just like not every single private made it in the unit. I mean, how many soldiers washed out from day zero to day, whatever, two and a half years later, I think Pee Wee said, man, I just went to his 100-year birthday, and Colonel Sink's granddaughter was there, or daughter. Her daughter was there. She was conceived at Tacoa um, and born, and they all knew her as Baby Sink. And he's 100 now, and she's 80-something. That's crazy. <laughs> and they still call her Baby. But, uh, well, because he's 100. He's an old man. But, um, well, I forget my point with that. A lot of people washed out is what you're saying. A lot of people washed out, and what Pee Wee said was, I think it was around like 7,800, maybe 8,000 people started out, and then I think like 1,500 graduated, something like that. Really? I mean, yeah, it was a big washout rate, and maybe they don't even, they, they make it elite, 
and I bet the numbers are in the book and I just forget them. But um, it just FYI, I don't think they highlight that enough in the series after just watching that episode again, that it was a lot of people washed out. And they show a brief series with um, Sergeant uh, Lipton. And one soldier, yeah. And, and he just kind of like rang the bell. He just, I'm double check. Or do you want to be here or not? You know, and then, okay, you're on. And I think that happened all the freaking time, whether they voluntarily gave up, whether they uh, just couldn't cut the mustard and they said, we don't want you anymore. You know, mm-hmm. you're going to go somewhere else um, or the, you know, or the advanced stuff. Because again, if you can't do the little things right, which is just, that's why I think the individualism of Curry was every man for himself. That sounds selfish, but not at the beginning of training. Everybody has to meet a certain minimum standard. That's the first wave of weeding out people is all of that stuff. So, I mean, my point is Sobel made it through the training, but he still didn't graduate to the end of it, which is the, uh, the tactics piece. And that's not there's I'm sure plenty of officers got relieved for that sort of thing and moved along. And, and other guys that, you know, they just move them around. Uh, it happened to us. It totally happened to us. We had training. It happened. We did the JRTC pre-deployment. Uh, tactics came up at, to the forefront. And we replaced, you know, the colonel. I was just lieutenant. You were brand new. Uh, field uh, fire support officer. And they replaced the whole command team with fresh new people that we weren't, we didn't even train with. Um, so it, it, it's a constant, um, even today. So that aspect, when you're getting into kind of the art of leadership, to me, is like the easiest or the hardest thing to do possible, which is just be around your people. So Sobel had no idea, again, to take him at face value and what he said, very surprised, like that is so detached from your guys. And that aspect of being tied in with your unit of just spending time with him, that's it. Just talking with him. You don't even, it doesn't have to be, you know, one-on-one sessions, just be around them and you'll pick up on this stuff. It is both the easiest thing because you don't have to have had any military training prior to that. You can do it today. You can walk out today and talk to people, but it's also the hardest because it's intimidating, man. These, Mm. every single step of the way there's, there's, I don't know. It's this, for me, it was, it's a, do I belong here? Should I, you know, do they want to talk to me? Should I be further back? Should I not get too close? Um, Do they want time away from the officer? Cause they don't really want him around when they're bullshitting about this, that, or the other. So, but that's it. If you're with them, if you're around them, you wouldn't be surprised when 20 some or more NCOs say you're unfit for combat. There's a, yeah. Being present, being present. And I think if you really want to, if anybody wants the lesson learned here, I mean, it's besides the set, the example, um, it's the negative feedback. So think about this and think about with your kids. If you got kids, if all they ever hear from you is a gig, Every time you come around, there's something wrong. Oh, what is it now? What, you know, just like, I'm never good enough. Every single time Sobel came around, it was the stick. He gave zero carrot. And, and made my art of it, I'm all, I'm carrot all day. I do not like having to use a stick. I'd rather find good stick guys that can be my stick. <laughs> Cause I'd rather be the carrot person and, and more motivate like with like, say, Hey, we've improved. Good job. Right. Focus on what, yesterday we couldn't do today we did do something better he at least in the series there's zero him of saying you guys i think what difference would it make if they all completed the run after the spaghetti and he was like high-fiving them and like 
truly happy, truly happy that they did it and celebrated and even said, man, I didn't think you guys were going to do it. I was kind of just messing with you because you haven't had spaghetti in a while. Or just who, who knows how we phrased it. But the clap on the back, a lot of times that's all anybody needs because we're our own worst enemy in our head and we feel like we don't belong and they're in a strange land and going to war and it's awkward and it's scary. It's scary. It's such a dark cloud. But you got the people to your left and right. And if the person in charge of you is always just negative, neg I mean, he was just so negative. Man, it's got to be exhausting. So I'll swing that all the way over to the other side. There's extremes on both ends, right? I mean, it's, there's so much right. nuance to this. But yeah. maybe, I'm going to say this anyways, and I'm probably going to say it in every episode we do, but maybe my favorite piece in this entire series is when Winters and Lieutenant Compton are driving in a Jeep. They're now, you know, fast forward, they're getting ready to jump. And Winters chastises him for gambling with his men. Mm. And, and Compton says, it's fine. I lost. I'm just hanging out with the guys. They like hanging. It's good. I'm spending time with them, right? It's the opposite of what Sobel is doing. But Winters says, what if you had won and never put yourself in a position to take from these men? That, I mean, you could put that on a, that can be a part of any leadership course ever, right? Um, that might be I mean, one did, of my favorite parts in the entire series. Did you carry that with you while you served? Still, so you're still in today. I so um, we actually, I actually quoted that line about a week ago for our business here in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. We, um, our in-laws are moving into town, moved into town. And at the, at the business, we were talking about it. And one of the employees overheard it. And, and somebody made a joke about them helping us unpack, helping our in-laws unpack. Next thing you know, she's kind of been guilted into, let me know when it is. I'll be there on Saturday. So on her day off, coming to help her boss's parents move in and kept saying, no, I want to, I want to be there. Like, no, like we had to kind yeah. of drop the hammer and say, it's, um, you can't, we can't, we're in a position where, um, just like any leadership position, you can't ask things of folks like that. She feels obligated to do it. And she was going to say yes, if we asked, and it's not fair to her to do that. So um, yeah, this has been top of mind for 20 years now. I love it. I think it's a really, really solid point. You, it is a heavy burden because you're in an environment where they have to call you sir or ma'am and they have to execute your orders. Like they don't, even back then a little bit, I mean, it was still old school. If you deny an officer, they could shoot you in the head. I mean, that still existed back then. That sort of lawful order thing, the power that an officer has over his soldiers or her soldiers. And like, that is tricky. And, and, and taking advantage of that, if you know, you find yourself in a weird spot, like, it's just, it's such a weird I, it's just such a weird job. The more, I, you know, the, you reflect on it and, and think about how young they were. He's just out of college or something because he played. I know he played baseball at UCLA. Um, but everybody's looking at them to do the right thing. They see the bar and they do expect you to do the right thing and to make. The, and, they, and they trust that. They trust that judgment. They have to give their lives for that judgment, you know. And so it's just like a, it's a huge 
huge burden of responsibility to where it's like, but at the same time, as we see with Sobel, it doesn't mean you have to be their enemy either. You have to be friendly. You want to be friendly, but you're not friends. I mean, I think it's like being a parent in a sense, you know, you can be a very strict parent and authoritarian and that probably works, you know, it achieves his result. Your kids will achieve results. Yes. But where does the human element come in? Because that's what it is at the end of the day. It's not about the gun. So never put yourself in a position to take from these men. My big view there is that there's no gray area. And if you create a gray area, it's a problem. That's one of those black yeah. and white. Um, yeah, air on that side of that side of caution. It is so it's so tricky and careful. And if you're going to air, you need to air on the side of not putting. Yeah, I agree. And I carried that with me, like from watching it, it, it resonated with me. It made sense, you know, trying to understand as a civilian kid, 17 year old, like, what is this all about? You know, what is an all? Because I was going to go officer route. You know, what is this? You know, what's going to be expected of me? What is that job like? And that's an example, you know, to pass that wisdom on in a sense, because you, you learn it. I learned it from cadre, ROTC, peers, mentors. It's that gift of wisdom of lessons learned the hard way, you know, and it gets taught and passed down in the military, I think, it, just in a tremendous way. And this is a way for everyone to benefit from that. So it's like them sharing their stories allows all this positivity to come out of it. That's my take on it. So we've kind of hit on a bunch of different aspects of the leaders in the series, but we really haven't talked about Lieutenant Winters who ends up being, if there is a main character in the series, I think I'd say that it's him, right? Mm -hmm. Random aside, when we were graduating Beast Barracks, which is the West Point freshman basic training kind of thing. um, Winters wrote a letter to our class. It was read out during like the 4th of July fireworks or something like that. And I just remember thinking, Oh my God. Um, Legend. Right. But anyways, we're getting into the last kind of bullet point, last focus area here. And I think it's a great way to end it with Lieutenant Winters and just an awesome scene. One that gave me goosebumps. And if you you just go back and just watch this is they finally get the order to go Mm -hmm. canceled, you know, on June, June 4th, getting ready to jump today, the evening of June 5th, they actually load up and get ready to go. That's a whole nother beast. Right. Think about right. getting ready to go yeah. on that air assault. Yeah. But yep. they uh, they're finally loading up to go. Winter says a couple words to his guys. And then as they're laying on the ground with their packs on, with their parachutes on way down, hundred pounds, easy on each man. Can't get up themselves. Winters walks from one man to the next, puts his hand out, pulls them up, shakes their hand. Some of them kind of awkwardly salute. You can tell they, they feel like they should salute. They don't really know. It's kind of an awkward, you know, um, that's the relationship though I love it's it. a great i loved it too um it's that looking in the eye it's acknowledgement of fear i feel it too but i'm right there with you you know because it's a lie you know you want to be optimistic but you also got to be realistic because if you're just this optimistic cheerleader come on guys rah rah it's fake in a lot of ways and he just comes off and i just i want to we could just I look forward to talking about it more. The first episode isn't about winter so much. Um, so I really look forward to talking about even more specific things that he has done or did. Um, but the little things like that, that's the humanity. 
And I think that the look in the eye that you don't see that if there were captions of the context are, you might die, I might die, we don't know, but we're doing it together. You ready? Let's go. And, and that's why do I salute or not? Because they felt so close. That's the awkwardness, which yep. is a win if you think about it. And, but it's not about that either. <laughs> you know, I mean, he just, I think he's a guy trying to do the right thing, right? What does that mean? I know that there were rules in place and, you know, structure and rank, but at the end of the day, like I'm the one who's ranking here and I'm they're entrusted to me. And what do I do with that? That, that little awkward salute. If you go back and watch it, I think it was one soldier, one paratrooper. Um, they did such, you're talking about the details that they got right. That was so spot on and looked so natural. And you've seen it before. You've seen it where somebody salutes. Maybe it wasn't you, maybe it was somebody else. And they don't really know if they're supposed to because they're in subway or something, right? Or, or whatever it is, but they see the person and they, they feel like I have to. And they're not doing that because a captain walked by. It's because the person that walked by, right? Yeah. There's plenty of, you know, if you're sitting in the defect and it's just, it shows that level of respect that Winters has from his men. And I don't know, I don't know how, you know, I got to think that was scripted, but holy cow, I think that little piece just nailed it. Um, there's the saluting also I'd like to mention, a lot of people don't probably pick up on, and it chastises me. Um, when, well, and I, if I'm wrong, I know I'm, I know I'm right about this. When Sybil got fired and when he got canned and he's heading back and uh, they render salute to him, Baby and Nixon and Winters, he doesn't render one back. And that's jacked up and disrespectful. Um, yeah, nobody likes saluting. Come on, nobody, nobody likes saluting. Some people might like being saluted, but nobody likes saluting. And so for them to take the effort to do it, you give it back, man. And if you got a whole stack of books, it doesn't even matter. Like, that's my take on it. And he didn't. And I don't know if anybody caught that or not. Some people I'm sure did, but it's BS. The last thing that I want to add about that last seed of Winters helping everybody in, it reminds me when you look at a sporting event um, and the captain's at the door, high-fiving people on the way out, right? Like, let's go get them. Here we go. Um, but it's a football game or a hockey game. So it's not that important. So a high-five does the trick fist bump, whatever. These guys are going into combat, all of them. I guess I don't know this for a fact, but my guess is all of them for the first time, just given the unit, um, when the unit yeah, was stood up. Yeah. And they expected heavy, heavy casualties. They knew yeah. the people they were looking at might not even make it out of the plane, and many of them weren't coming home at baseline. Winters used that opportunity to not just throw high fives, but to grip hands with each one of them and have a one-on-one -on -one moment looking in their eyes. Here we go. We'll see you over there. Each person yeah. got that one-on-one. -on -one. This wasn't like a rah-rah speech in front of an entire platoon. It was one-on-one -on -one because the gravity of the situation called for that. And I love that. I love that he, it's something, something small, but he could have just as easily helped the guy up right there and said, now help the guy behind you. I'm getting on. That's well, yeah. Or he just could have said, uh, um, your pants aren't bloused. <laughs> yeah. No, seriously. Like you could just nitpick them and still, and, 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 and people are like that. People are like that. They're always going to find something to nitpick. Um, that's the art. That's the nuance. What do you do? So if I'll count on you to tell me when this happens, Sayer, but when VR is 
there at the right level. One of the things I want to see is the Allied Armada moving across the English Channel. The first episode ends with Winters looking out the plane, and they kind of show that. Um, there have been some pictures. There's been a little bit of video, but it doesn't show the scope. We're talking thousands of ships. And I would give anything to be able to actually witness that at scale and see just how absolutely daunting that convoy was moving across the English Channel. Um, so when the VR version of that comes out, there, I need you to let me know. It could be done right now. That's what people don't know about VR. Right now, that's not something... All it is is software development. The technology is there. For someone to create a program of what it's like to be riding in the plane. Like you've played, remember the video game Call of Duty where they do the boat and the landing craft of, uh, you could do that in VR in a sense. Um, And they can probably do it with like make it how realistic. It's just going to increase, right, with time. But like doing the jump probably, even being a German and seeing it in the sky at nighttime, the paratroopers coming down, those sort of scenes. You could probably watch the scene as a cinematic thing that could be created right now. The video game could be created. It's there uh, to actually, and then the real cool would not even be the video game, but the cinematography of the, the graphic and the visual because sharing in those experiences would be pretty, pretty darn neat to, to think of that. I don't know. Well, it uh, episode one ended with, Winters in his aircraft with his his platoon or part of his platoon heading across the English Channel, getting ready to parachute into Normandy on D-Day. That episode is called Day of Days. And that's mm-hmm. next time on War Stories. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.